welcome. This is Adam Gomez. He's going to be uh, just kind of sharing who he is, what he does, and answering a couple of uh, questions that we got for the DSM-5 uh, specifically and what mental illness, um, how, it's, how it's determined for mental illness, but also at the same time, what it means to be chemically imbalanced when a doctor says that. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Adam. Uh, who are you? What do you do? All of that fun stuff. Sure. Uh, hello, uh, thank you very much for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, for those of you uh, didn't hear, my name is Adam, Adam Gomez III. Uh, I am <laughs> I am a uh, recent graduate uh, with my master's in uh, marriage and family therapy at uh, Pepperdine University. Uh, and I have known Nisha for way too long. It's been a good time. <laughs> a lot of years there. Um, and yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me to talk about the DSM-5 uh, and talk about any chemical imbalance questions anyone has uh, for sure. Awesome. So as Adam said, we've known each other for a really long time. We go all the way back to freshman year of high school. Um, yeah. So you said that you, you are a recent grad of being an MFT. Uh, can you explain what that is to people? How is that different from the clinical side uh, versus maybe the research side that I'm on? Mm, yeah, very good question. So MFT, uh, marriage and family therapy, is more of the counseling, more of the, the therapy side. It's kind of like the, the job that you kind of see in like uh, the media, like movies and TV shows. It's, it's kind of uh, the person that you come into and uh, we have like one-on-ones or group family sessions uh, in my field, being marriage and family, it, it kind of has a, a different population of uh, couples or individuals, and it can go from all age ranges and all kind of uh, society backgrounds, too. Awesome. What would be your advice to someone who is pursuing an MFT degree? Ooh, that's a very good question. Um, just, uh, you'll learn very early on with uh, handling uh, clients, handling people in general, uh, have a lot of patience, definitely. Um, have a, you'll learn as you go through the program, uh, the term counter-transference. Uh, what that means, counter-transference, is kind of a, an ability to understand that uh, certain um, issues or problems that maybe you're facing yourself, the therapist, you don't want to kind of transfer it over to the session, to the client's, um, so that's a big thing that a lot of uh, uh, us kind of have to face and kind of have to keep in check. Um, also, to kind of get uh, graduated from the program, to get like licensing, you have to be very good with like handling your paperwork, uh, documenting like your hours and your progress notes. Uh, so have a very good computer, a very good filing thing. Um, so I just say stay up on top of that. And a lot of it's a lot easier than that. And have fun you know, with, with your sessions and clients for sure. I love that. Um, and then one of the other questions that I get a lot from just individuals about MFT degree, I used, I used to be an academic advisor. So mm. I'm sure, you know, how many hours does it take to get the licensure to be an MFT individual, to hold that license? Well, that's good. Well, so um, to get the different degrees, I uh, usually have different requirements for MFT, uh, in my uh, program at, at Pepperdine, uh, we had to have, uh, I believe it was 200 and, uh, 
seventy. I better know this. Two hundred seventy-five <laughs> uh, <laughs> documented hours during the program, and that's what gets you to graduate. I'm very lucky I was able to get that done finally. Um, and then to get licensing to go further, once you're past the program, you still have to continue to document those hours. Um, and um, to have it fully certified, I believe it's about 3,000 hours. It's a lot of hours to do all of this stuff that you have to do to get to where you are. Um, so what is, this is the last question on the education side, and then we'll move sure. into the, the deeper question. <laughs> What is one way that you stayed motivated to get those hours done? Um, are you still working on those hours? And um, what, is, what is just an encouragement you can give to other students going down that route? Um, well, to stay motivated, um, I think, to be completely honest, I think I, I've always been kind of uh, driven in this field. Um, I think most people, uh, not to generalize, but a good population, once they've kind of gone to the pursuit of the graduate degree, I think they kind of uh, acknowledge like their passion is there uh, for the most part. It's not, it's not gonna like fizzle away. Um, but I will say a big thing that I've learned is definitely self-care, uh, definitely taking time for yourself. Um, I had to do my uh, practicum and my location, my centership and all that stuff during the pandemic. Uh, so it's very stressful. I imagine we all face some uh, stressor, some kind of uh, trauma during that time. So uh, my advisors, my supervisor and everything definitely were very on me about taking time for myself, um, having time to kind of move away from the uh, academic part for at least like a day in the month or a day in the week, you know, get the recharge buttons. It, it makes things a lot, because a lot of people burn out. So you don't want that to happen. Um, uh, luckily, I am complete with my hours. So that's why I'm very happy with that. Yes. Uh, well, I will be officially graduated uh, by next month. So I'm very happy with that. So that's really good. That's uh, huge. Congratulations. Yeah. A lot. A lot so of work. Just, yeah. So I just applied for a little piece of paper, which is good. Uh, and yeah, yeah it's, it's, not as, it's not as daunting as people think it is. It's, it's, it's very doable always think that so that's the advice is that it is doable so if if someone mm -hmm. is just kind of if you could with the, the hours that you're you've had to complete how many hours would you say that you put in a week for those hours was it 40 hour weeks or did you do it 15 20 hours how did that look when you did the school hour practicum that you had to do very good question well everybody's different um i know with my practicum site once you get more than five hours a week because um, you have five hours a week individually with you and a client, and then along with the practicum, you have a one a two hour session with a supervisor once a week. So once you pass uh, five hours with clients, so if you have like a, a six client, now you're over six hours. You need to have two um, uh, supervised sessions with your supervisor. Does that make sense? Oh, so yeah. um, so as long as you have availability. I know everybody's different. Me, my certain case, you know, I have a full-time job while I'm in full-time school. So I, uh, I was able to uh, always stay consistent with five hours. Um, and the, the struggle with that is sometimes, you know, with your clients, they can uh, call out, they can just not show up, they can uh, move around their schedule. They have lives too, I understand. 
So um, always be prepared with that. But if you're um, fortunate to have a more flexible schedule and you can kind of add up a little bit more to, you know, maybe I have uh, other uh, um, coworkers who have like eight to 10 clients per week uh, and they're very able to do that. Um, and I, I think if you're, if you know yourself that you're able to kind of acknowledge that that's doable for you, I say more experience points for you. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's go into the DSM five conversation. So yeah. I know what it is, but a lot of people actually don't, they just hear someone say, Hey, DSM five, uh, we call this the Bible of psychology specifically for your side. I know that that is I know I felt a little silly because I was like, hey, do you know about the DSM-5? And you're like, yeah, duh. I was like, well, that was probably a <laughs> stupid question to ask. Um, but what is it and how do doctors use it to, um, I, don't, I don't know if it would be to diagnose or what, what is it and how is it used? Very good question. Um, so yeah, if you've never heard of the DSM-5, DSM-5 is an abbreviation. It stands for a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental, mental Disorders. Uh, the five is the fifth edition uh, that it is. Uh, the fifth edition has been uh, revised uh, lastly in 2013. Um, so that is kind of the last time it had like its update. Um, a lot of people, since it's been 2013, people have asked, oh, is there going to be a two, uh, DSM-6? Uh, as of right now, no one is really considering it. No one's really thought of it just yet. The first uh, DSM uh, was actually published in 1952. So it's definitely been a, a good amount of time. Uh, mm. And they revise it because we come across uh, new uh, uh, research uh, details, new opportunities to kind of diagnosing people. Um, to answer your full question though, what is the DSM-5? It's uh, used as like descriptions and like symptoms uh, and other kind of criteria to kind of diagnose mental disorders uh, during like therapeutic sessions and like uh, evaluations. Hmm. So when now, when these diagnoses come in, who is it that gives the diagnosis for people who may not be aware? Oh, okay. Well, the the book is made by the American Psychiatric Association. So a lot of uh, psychologists um, and therapists, even myself, during like my practicum that I just mentioned. Um, we're uh, kind of ex briefed into experiencing on, on kind of diagnosing our clients. Uh, it's not necessarily our diagnosing of the client is kind of going to go justifying to give them like medication and stuff, but we're getting kind of that uh, familiarity, that kind of exercise and kind of seeing the symptoms that we see. Um, when you have like a client who may be a little bit more of extreme behaviors, uh, maladaptive behavior, uh, their symptoms are kind of a lot more uh, elaborate. Um, then we uh, propose an evaluation with the psychiatric and they kind of give a lot more details on like the uh, possible signs of a disorder. And then you can go further with like medication or other kinds of treatment too. I feel like this is something that's really hard for people to grasp, not because it's difficult, but because there's so many different things at play you have your therapist, you can have a counselor, you could have a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so yeah. in, in your um, in your field, 
would you as an MFT be able to just uh, prescribe medication or how do you, how would you go about to make sure that that individual is getting the right medication um, and who, who would just prescribe that for them? Very good question. So when I first meet a client, the very first session, I do what we call an assessment. It's kind of like a big word for like a, a, a more intense interview process. Um, so during the assessment, I ask a lot of uh, easy questions and I ask some uncomfortable questions. I ask kind of like the general like date of birth, um, your cultural background, why are you here, things like that. And then I ask more intense questions kind of like uh, as far as like suicidal risk, um, ideations on like possibly self-harm, things like that. Um, I also go and part of the assessment why I bring it up is we talk a lot about uh, medical history too. Are they currently on any kind of medication? Have they been on medication before? Um, and then during that kind of first interview, I kind of have, I'm no, I'm no expert yet, but I definitely have kind of a more eye to kind of see signs, see symptoms that the person is kind of, uh, kind of showing, displaying. And from there, I can kind of make a suggestion, a recommendation. Like, I think this person is kind of, demonstrating high anxiety or high depression mm -hmm. or you know things like that and then from there I in my current state I then take it to my supervisor and say hey I, I'm seeing a lot of this stuff and then if, it, if my supervisor sees that and trusts me then they might recommend um, a psyche evaluation so that's like the next channel and what that does is they basically do exactly what I did they just do it a little bit more trained and then if they see something that I saw then they are the ones that kind of go, okay, I think this person should, this person might be, let's just, for example, might be explaining like bipolar. So let's put maybe a description on a medication of, uh, you know, lithium or whatever they feel could be working to just help the clients, uh, you know, feel, you know, a little bit better. Mm, that's a good point. So with that, a lot of I, I, I've heard the term of medically, um, or sorry, chemically imbalanced, where yeah. a doctor might say this to you. What does that mean? And why does it sound so scary? So it is a scary term. And me personally, I try, it, I mean, it's, it's scientifical. So, I mean, it's not necessarily the wrong phrasing, but it, as you just pointed out, people who might not know what that means or might be a little confused on the term it could be daunting it could really scare them and they could immediately kind of withdraw from you so i i personally don't try to use that term so much uh but education i think will help people you know not be so scared about it chemically imbalanced what it comes down to is if you have like you know uh substances in your brain as far as uh maybe uh neurotransmitters or things like that that kind of connects the brain together it might have a little bit too little or too much of that operating the way that it, it uh, usually should be kind of going with. And so if someone kind of sees that, then that's where kind of the medication side comes in. Um, a lot of people, when they kind of have that, they usually get prescribed something called uh, antidepressants. And that kind of, uh, what that does is kind of, that kind of either uh, regulates those imbalances and kind of gives those chemicals the, the extra uh, energy or the kind of uh, restraint that they need to kind of function. So um, I do have some parents who have kids on, like, listen to this stuff. So yeah. the, uh... 
Oh no, I think you cut out. I muted, I muted myself. Oh, you did. Okay. <laughs> ah, I did. I have big thumbs. And so my thumb decided to touch the button, which is great because I think this is the best part about doing these things live without practice. Um, so, okay. Uh, so like I was saying, there are parents who have um, kids who might have a chemical imbalance or have heard that their, their kid has a chemical imbalance. And mm. some kids, uh, teenagers might be listening to this. So if you had yeah. to break down to a level of maybe fifth grade, how would you say, hey, this is what's going on in your brain if you were talking to a fifth grader? So think of, uh, think of the brain is kind of like a mailman, okay? So it's kind of like you have a bunch of little mailman in like envelopes going back and forth through your brain and they send messages back and forth through your brain and, some t and everything's operating great. Everything's going as it should go. But then let's just say something happens which I should also say, no one necessarily knows the exact cause of why this imbalance happens. Mm -hmm. So there's not really something that they do. It's not something that someone else did to them. A lot of times it just happens like through growing up, aging, could be, you know, genetics. It could be something that, uh, you know, uh, an event that happens. But anyway, so you have these messages just going through the brain all the time. And eventually what the chemical imbalance does is eventually those messages, those mailmen, what they're doing their job, they might start slowing down. They may not get the message all the way across to the other section of the brain as quickly. Vice versa, there's also cases where they might be working overtime and they might be sending messages going back and forth, back and forth to where now you, you're trying to tell them like, hey, can you guys slow down? But they're, they're not listening to you now. They're just constantly going. Mm. So, what, what happens with that is a lot of symptoms that pop up during that time. It could be anything from like loss of appetite. You don't want to eat anymore. You want to sleep all day. You want to not sleep at all. Um, it could be you're just constantly just irritable, which means like you're constantly just mad all the time. Anything little annoys you. Uh, you could have mood swings where you're happy one second and the next second you're just completely sad or mad for not really knowing why. Um, you could have a lack of uh, em uh, empathy. Ah. Oh, no. Hi. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You <laughs> big thumbs too. You can have uh, um, you can have lack of energy. You're drained all the time. You don't want to do anything. Um, and also, you can have lack of empathy. Empathy is like you know the caring of another person or, or wanting that. You might not have that you know adjustment as much anymore. And then when that happens and parents might see it for their kids or teenagers might see it around their peers again, like their friends, that's when like uh, you're kind of noticing something is different now. And then that's when like we kind of come in to kind of uh, notice that as well. And that's why you recommend sometimes it's counseling, sometimes it's medication, sometimes mm -hmm. it's both. And it's bringing the right things together and making sure like you are assessing them, but also your director or another person assesses to make sure you're not giving the wrong assessment, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay. There's, a lot, there's a lot of people that are available for you at all times. And then usually all those people have like different jobs for you. Like your school counselor will help you with school stuff. I might help you with like maybe some stuff that you don't, that you just need to talk about. Uh, and then like the psychiatric side might help you with some kind of medication too as well. There's nothing that's 
uh, more important than the other. There's nothing that's wrong with the other one. They're all there to kind of build you to get you where you want to be. Sounds, that sounds really good. It's like a, a whole team for you. If somebody was experiencing any type of maybe anxiety or they think they might be having anxiety or depression, where would you tell them to start first? It's a very good question. So like with anxiety and like depression and things like that, those are mood disorders. Those affect like your mood and like how you rate. So I think the very first thing to understand is everybody has these feelings also. Everybody gets anxiety, everybody has depression. But makes it kind of go to that extreme as far as anxiety disorder is uh, when it becomes a, a, a conflict in like your daily life. You know, you're unable to do certain things because the anxiety is kind of uh, taking over certain things. The depression is kind of stopping you from doing certain things too. Um, when something happens like that, the one of the hardest things to do is to kind of seek help first. You know, a lot of people are kind of one, uh, a lot of people might feel shame. Lot, they might feel embarrassment. They might feel like people aren't going to, they're going to say exactly what I just said. Like, oh, everybody's sad. Don't worry about it. Everyone gets worried. Don't worry about it. You know, when that happens, a lot of people go, okay, it's just something that happens. And then it kind of stops there. Unfortunately, a lot also is uh, that we learned in, in my programs, a lot of it could also be a culture thing too as well. You know, a lot of things like as far as culture might be, have their cultural background to, oh, we don't really go into therapy. We don't really talk about our feelings, whatever that culture may be. The other thing might be, you know, resources too. You know, if someone is unfortunately in like a lower uh, social economic state, they might not have the funds or the resources or the availability to kind of go out and kind of, you know, have those kind of uh, opportunities, whether it be funding or whether it be just time we don't really have the time to that um, when that happens though i would say the biggest advice i would give is if you feel something is upsetting you whether it be anxiety depression whatever it may be you you are not less of a person to kind of speak out for that to kind of say hey you know something doesn't feel all there and i don't like this feeling so i'm going to talk about it and if someone kind of gives you that kind of uh, roadblock, go, okay, maybe you're not a person I can talk to. I know there is going to be someone that I can talk that will listen. And then eventually from there, you can get that resource, that therapy session, whatever it may be, the medication eventually, maybe that can kind of get you to where you feel comfortable. Mm, I like that. Um, last question is for those who might not be able to afford going to counseling or to even get the medication, are there resources that they can check out locally or by state or anything like that, that you know of? Um, yes. Um, what I would recommend, um, you know, I think the easiest answer is, you know, there are always helplines. Those are always uh, available for you on, you know, internet. If you search for them, they're very easy to pop up. The, wherever you are locally, as far as where you, you know where you live, there usually will be kind of a center around in some way that can kind of help you, even if it's like like a boys and girls club or something like that, that can kind of be there as kind of a you know resource. And if not, they can give you something else. Um, I know myself personally uh, during my undergrad, um, I finally realized I had depression myself, and I 
uh, I did what you were not supposed to do. I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't look for anything. And I just let it sit. And that is not great because when you're not dealing with it, you know, uh, with extra help, uh, it can manifest and it can grow. And you don't want that. So um, I think as far as anything, as far as even starting with the, the helplines, they can guide you into something else that can make you, you know, way better to, you know, helping you out. We love that knowledge. I think helplines are such a gift that we often don't take advantage of because of, like you said earlier, shame and fear and, and sometimes even guilt of like, I shouldn't feel this way. Um, but it was so great to have you on. It was so great to, to catch up with you shortly. Um, but is there anything else you want to add before we close out? Um, I, I am very thankful for you having me on your show. Uh, if uh, anyone was able to get something from this. I really appreciate it. That's what we do this for. Um, I, if you, anyone would like to expand the conversation to anything else later, I'd be happy to come back, definitely. Um, and just, you know, for all those people who might be struggling with anything, just know it does, it, there are ways to always help you get, uh, you know, more help. Absolutely, and I'm sure you'll be back. I'm sure we're gonna get some more questions um, I know with mental health, it's, it's always that thing of we're always learning, but we don't understand it. And I think COVID really exposed how much of us were living in um, just more of that anxiety and depression. I'm sure we've, you've said it before already where you said something about uh, COVID is going to end up being in the next edition because it's going to COVID fatigue or Zoom fatigue or whatever, whatever comes from this just because of how impactful and hurtful it's kind of hit, you know, hit us in in the wrong areas. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining. Uh, we'll have you back later. And if you guys have any questions, you guys can reach out to me and we'll bring Adam back to answer them. Thanks, Adam. Of course.